Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Um, But with that said, we do need to start getting into our Come Follow Me portion of our show today. Um, And this week we will be covering, um, it'll be the lesson for November 7th through 13th. It's um, Hosea and Joel. Um, And specifically, uh, the lesson just covers Hosea chapters 1 through 6. Um, and uh, and then chapters t- uh, 10 through 14, and then the book of Joel is only, I think, what, three chapters, or is it four? Three chapters. So uh, that one's nice and short. These are, I don't know, technically we've probably already had an introduction to the minor prophets at this point, uh, or well, maybe not. Um, but these are these are part of what's called the minor prophets, or the book of 12 in Jewish tradition. Um and um, uh, the background for a lot of these prophets isn't super well known or established, at least so far as I understand. Maybe Stephen, our our actual resident Hebrew Bible <laughs> expert here, could can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I don't know what the date traditionally is for the Book of Joel, uh, but Hosea not good dating on the Book of Joel. I mean, it could be yeah. the exile. It could be all the way during the United Monarchy. I mean, it's really unclear. Yeah, like like I said, uh, a lot the background on a lot of these books is is really hard to to pin down. Hosea is one of the exceptions to that. That's true. Yep. Uh we do have a pretty good idea he's an 8th century prophet, um which makes him roughly contemporary, probably a little bit earlier than Isaiah uh for a point of reference for some people. Um uh from what I understand, he's he's generally thought to be like the first half of the 8th century B.C., and uh, it's a little noteworthy that he is a northern kingdom prophet. Um, most of the prophets in the Bible, because it was it was organized and compiled in uh, Jerusalem, are, you know, prophets to Judah in the southern kingdom. But he is he's he's a prophet who was called to the northern kingdom of Israel and ministered so there. That's why there's so much Ephraim here. Yeah, 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 and so yeah, it's talking a lot about Ephraim and Israel, and it occasionally he'll he'll toss in Judah, but that's yeah. really his emphasis is the Northern Kingdom. Um, so I don't know if anybody else has anything else to offer on the background here before we uh, jump in. I get PTSD reading Hosea, <laughs> and the reason for that being in my in my grad school work and my yeah. coursework for my PhD, I took uh, two classes on biblical. Hebrew poetry, and we read the book of Hosea because, spoiler alert, a lot of it is poetry. Um, As the prophets are wont to do, they structure a lot of their oracles uh, as poetry, and uh, reading the poetry of Hosea is hard in Hebrew. It's... uh, it's not very clear in some places. It's not impossible. It's just hard. You have to take your time with it. And my favorite anecdote uh, to give people a sense of how much they take for granted when they're reading a, a translation of Hosea, my favorite anecdote is that uh, uh, Jerome, when he was doing his commentaries on the Latin Vulgate translation of the Old Testament, uh, he began by saying, Hosea is hard. <laughs> he he apparently leaves a comment in there. My uh, One of my classmates, who's a Catholic priest, brought that up, uh, that Jerome's commentaries, he also didn't like Hosea. But Hosea is a really fun book. But yes, uh, that's all I want to say in terms of background is uh, if I start you know, having shakes and fits while reading Hosea, that's why. It's because <laughs> I find myself in my, in my coursework again. I when I really love the book of Hosea just from a conceptual perspective because it centers around that metaphor of Israel being the bride of Christ and you see it a lot referenced lightly in Isaiah and in Jeremiah but Hosea takes it to a whole new level because it becomes very literal for the prophet Hosea where the Lord commands him to the Lord commands Hosea to take a harlot for a wife who is persistently and chronically unfaithful to him and kind of like the pain that he feels for that. And it's this metaphor for how Israel's always unfaithful to the Lord, yet he always takes her back. 
and how the Lord's mercy is infinite and all of that. And I don't know, just laying it out in that metaphor. Well, it's not a metaphor. Laying it out so literally like that for Hosea makes it just all the more real, more visceral, more potent. Um, Because, I mean, when I think about being in a marriage relationship, even before I was married, I would think about this this metaphor about how how absolutely heartbreaking, like one of the worst things that can happen to a person is like their spouse cheating on them and how heartbreaking that is, how tragic that is and how unforgivable it is to a lot of people. And yet to see the Lord over and over and over just accept Israel back is uh, something that just really resonates a lot with me as I read the book of Hosea. So I'm looking forward to diving into the details. Uh, And uh, to Stephen's point, uh, given that the Hebrew here is really hard, this is that's generally a good indication that, you know, it might be a good idea if you are having a hard time with the book of Isaiah Consult additional translations. If if you can't read the Hebrew yourself, which is probably most of us, uh, um, this is when it can be really productive to actually consult some different translations or a study Bible that might have some notes that can help explain some of the confusing language and things like that. Because translators are having a hard time with this language. And so seeing the range of translation and how different translators have handled it can be helpful in these kinds of, of situations and circumstances. Yeah, if you get well, the... It's worth realizing that with poetry, sometimes this, this stuff really is multivalent. It's, it's designed to convey multiple meanings at the same time and play those off of each other in, in interesting ways in order to further its ultimate point. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Stephen? I was just going to say, if you happen to avail yourself of the JPS Tanakh, uh, <laughs> you will become well acquainted with the phrase, meaning of Hebrew uncertain in the textual <laughs> notes of the JPS translation of of Hosea. So, yes, please, uh, it is to your benefit to consult different translations of Hosea to see how different translators handle it. you, you got to love it when, when you're reading an actual you're, – you're reading an English translation, but then the note says, meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. And you're like, well, then where did this come from? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, but yes, so so why don't we go ahead and dive in, uh, starting in Hosea 1. And uh, Stephen, I think uh, you were going to yeah. have some comments for that. Uh. Right. So Hosea 1 begins with a superscription. We like this because it gives us a dating for our book, uh, because we know when these kings reigned. Um, so we can put a smack dab in the middle of the 8th century. So that's nice. So we know we have a sense of when he's he's prophesying. And right off the bat, the first thing that Hosea is told is to go uh, – I love this – get thee a wife of whoredoms and a children of whoredoms. That's a, that's a nice uh, Jacobian way to say, yeah, go uh, go get a wife who is a prostitute uh, or, 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 or uh, a, a woman of loose moral values, you might say, right? And as Jasmine so uh, – she so well put it, uh, the imagery here is unmistakable. So uh, Israel is being condemned for its idolatry um, and its political malfeasances. So in chapter 1, there's reference down – let me see. Uh, verse uh, verse 4, 5, there's a reference to the, the deeds of the house of Jehu for the bloody deeds at Jezreel. So this is a reference back in 1 Kings 21, I want to say, uh, the, the incident with uh, – uh, the vineyard of Naboth in the Valley mm. of Jezreel, right, yeah, with King yeah. Ahaz. Uh, and hey, what do you know? Jahaz, or Ahaz is mentioned here, right? So you have um, you you have all this. So so you have this reference to political malfeasance and shenanigans going on, uh, but also idolatry, right? And so every time you see, well, most of the time, I think when you see references to Israel being a wife of whoredoms or playing the whore or they go whoring after other gods or whatever. Yes, this imagery is is Israel is the unfaithful bride. So to highlight this, uh, God instructs Hosea, the prophet, to go take uh, this woman named Gomer uh, and uh, this this woman of harlotry, this wife of whoredom, uh, Gomer. There's questions about whether, you know, she was married to him first and then she acted the part of the harlot or whether she already was. I mean, there, I mean, we can't really know for sure, but but the bottom line is uh, here's the symbol uh, with um, uh, with Gomer. But what's interesting is she's going to have kids with Hosea and the kids are going to get some pretty fun names. Uh, 
Well, so, well, Gomer already is a pretty fun one. I don't know if anybody out there is expecting and trying to think of a good daughter's name, but Gomer isn't it. I'm going to tell you that right now. Yeah, I'm looking up hello, <laughs> and it's saying um, a shortened formed of yada yada completion. Enough. So, uh, so you know, like enough. I guess I don't know, right? I, I, I'm not married. Maybe that's what you say all the time in a marriage. Enough, honey. Right? I don't know. Um, yeah, you've you've uh, had enough with her unfaithfulness. I something suppose. like that. But yeah, something like has accomplished. It is enough, or the imperative enough. Something like that. Yeah. So, so Gomer has a fun name. Um, but we're also going to get some fun names for the kids. So we're going to get, uh, for example, in verse six, uh, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And he said to him, name her Lo Ruhamah, for I will no longer accept the house of Israel. Uh, Lo Ruhamah meaning uh, not accepted, not having accepted, not having obtained. Um, it's also kind of like a play on words because it sounds like the word for like mercy. So it's like no mercy, uh, you no know, pity, no pity, something like that. <laughs> So the first kid is going to be uh, no mercy, no acceptance, no pardon, because it says, for I will no longer accept the house of Israel or pardon them. Again, um, not one that you'd find on the bump.com yeah, or like probably, baby yeah. names. <laughs> yeah, what do you expect when you're expecting, you know, name your yeah. kid, Lo Ruhama. Uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not, telling not you, these, these are not, you know, if you're expecting, these are not, this is not the chapter to go to, to, to find your baby name. Yeah, definitely so you're not. You're saying we uh, shouldn't just name our child rejection, but replace the C with a K? Rejection. Oh, that's pretty good, actually. Yeah, and like it's like it's like R Y J E. Yeah, K T I O N or whatever. Yeah, that, that that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Hails. Um. So so the second kid in verse eight, um, uh, after we get Loru Hama, uh, she's going to conceive a second kid. <coughs> excuse me, a son, and the son's name is Lo Ami, which you might be able to guess means not my people and so uh because he says sure enough you are not my people i will not be your god so this is a divorce here uh you know uh, god and israel have to you know take some time apart from each other kind of things see separate people kind of things uh so clearly this is an indication of god's you know scholars call it like the the prophetic divorce right between uh, the, the nation and the god uh, the deity um, and these kids are going to get these names to really drive the point home. Uh, as prophets are wont to do, they do these prophetic gestures, you know, lying naked in the street or, you know, things like that. In this, I think that's Isaiah, right? Yeah. Uh, walking barefoot around the city like Ezekiel. In this case, it's going to be naming your kids these names. Um, so that's kind of the setup here that we get uh, in chapter one. We're setting up that uh, we're going to have a separation. We're going to have a, a national divorce between God and Israel, the reason being because of Israel's idolatry. And again, the symbolism is very straightforward. Chapter two is where you're going to get into the litany of sins that Israel is has committed that's going to justify sort of the uh, the national divorce or, or justify the prophetic condemnation. Um, and so you get into starting around verse uh, two, uh, verse two and three. This is where the poetry picks up, by the way. Um, so your King James translation isn't structured this way, but a lot of modern translations will structure it where uh, when the prophet enunciates the, the the cause of the condemnation and gives the prophetic oracle for wh- why things are so bad, it's in a system of poetry. And this is what we have here. Uh, the, the main takeaway is going to be uh, these sort of poetic parallelisms that are going to come up here uh, to really drive the point home. So, uh, and it's not a good situation. So starting in verse five, for example, um, uh, and I'm reading the JPS Tanakh here. Uh, so the versification, uh, well, it's starting in uh, verse three in the King James. Uh, so I'll read just King James. Lest I strip her naked and set her as in the days that she was born and make her as a wilderness. This is God referring to Israel, right? And set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children for they be the children of whoredoms. You don't want to hear God saying that about your kids for their mother hath played the harlot. She that hath conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Uh, Interesting, we get a connection between um, uh, idolatry and uh, prosperity, right? Mm -hmm. This is a theme we see in the Book of Mormon that our Latter-day Saint listeners will find interesting. uh, Linking the acts of idolatry, why are they doing this? Well, these other gods are going to give us nice things. They're going to give us food. They're going to give us... uh, uh, nice clothes, things like that, right? So because of this, God's not too happy, uh, starting uh, in verse 6 in the KJV uh, translation. I have a question yeah. real quick. Sure. So with verse 4, is that implying that the children she has, Ami and Ruhamah, 
are the children of her infidelity or did she conceive them with Hosea or is it just kind of conflating everything? I, I get the sense it's conflating everything. And a lot of the commentaries say that too, because once you get these symbols happening here, you, it's hard to differentiate. When is the symbol like referring to the wife and the actual kids versus when is the symbol being applied to corporate Israel as a whole? Um, it might even be like deliberately blurred, right? To, to sort of give it this sense of uh, you can't n- nicely delineate it to like try to to try to get out of the prophetic condemnation. Well, and, and given the state of ancient paternity testing, I think it probably could be nothing but blurred. Right. Yeah, I I was just going to make that same point, Hales. In in antiquity, you know, you don't have uh, paternity tests and stuff like that, and so if you have a wife who is playing the harlot and being unfaithful. You actually don't have, strictly speaking, a way to know if the children are yours or not. Uh, And so, you know, when it says that uh, they were conceived in adultery, well, if she was committing adultery at the time, like, you just, you don't know. You have no idea. Are these my kids or not at that point? And I do think it's worth noting there at the beginning of that verse, it has that reference to no pity or no mercy um, which is obviously an allusion back to the name of the of the daughter, um, in uh, in chapter one there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, go ahead and continue, Stephen. Yeah, no, that that's a good question. I think I think we're kind of hitting the mark there. Um, as we proceed further, because it's not all doom and gloom in chapter two. I mean, it does get pretty bad, right? Like God in verse ten, eleven says. Uh, I will cause all of her mirth, uh, that's like her rejoicing, right? So her her happiness. I will cause all of her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her solemn feasts. Uh, This is like Isaiah language, right? So none of Israel's cultic rituals or activities are going to be acceptable to me. Uh, I'll destroy her vines, her fig trees, all this sort of stuff. It goes on, etc., etc. However, the nice thing is is that uh, starting in verse uh, 14, uh, the King James says, I will uh, allure her and bring her into the wilderness. Uh, a better transition would be like, uh, I will uh, like speak coaxingly to her, right? Like, uh, And so, and then later, I will speak tenderly to her. This is not, now I'm going to the JPS Tanakh. Um, I will give her vineyards from there. Uh, there she shall respond as in the days of her youth when she came up out of the land of Egypt. Uh, and you will call me Ishi, which is my husband. So once again, hey, there's no divorce anymore. We're going to get remarried. Uh, once again, God will be Ishi, my uh, my husband, my man, and no longer will you be my Baali. Uh, so uh, there, there's a play on words here, right? Because Baal obviously is the god, the the Canaanite god that these people are worshiping. But Baal in Hebrew also is like a master or lord or a possessor, right? So it, it's an honorific for a husband or, or a male figure. So you will no longer call me Baal, as in like you know you won't longer worship the Baals. You will instead call me Ishi, my husband. It's much more. It's a much more intimate word, a yeah. uh, much more intimate phrase. So God is reclaiming Israel, um, uh, and so the, the message is: even though Israel done goofed really bad, and we have to go on a national divorce, God will allow for Israel's repentance and restoration. So there's always this lingering sense of uh, repentance is possible, restoration is possible. Um, with, without belaboring the point too much here. Um, oh, and then, by the way, it concludes uh, starting in verse uh, 23. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that have not attained mercy. And I will say to them which are not my people, thou art my people. And they will say, thou art my God. So uh, in other words, the kids that have the name Lo-Ami, you are not my people, uh, he's reversing the names, right? Mm-hmm. He's saying, yes, I'll take you back. You will be my people. You will have pity and acceptance from me. Um, finally, we'll just uh, say really quick in verse or in, in chapter three, and then I'll hand it over to whoever's next. We have a second thing where Hosea is supposed to go and take a harlot as a wife. Um, and there's debate if this is the same woman or a different woman. Um uh, but but the the metaphor is repeated, right? Where Hosea is going to befriend a woman uh, who has been with others, uh, but they and this is where we get look. They will turn to other gods and love the cups of the grape, uh, so uh, uh, or flagons of wine in the King James. So maybe we're not out of the the woods just yet uh, with Israel's idolatry, um, or it's like a prophetic repetition or a parallelism of some sort. Um, but what I do want to point on here real quick before I hand over the mic uh, is it ends with a sort of messianic prophetic statement of sorts. 
So um, I will, I'll, I'll read, I guess I'll read the King James. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod and without a teraphim. It's interesting that teraphim are there. What are those? We're not sure. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Remember, David, we're long past David, right? This uh-huh. is divided monarchy. This is... Uh, interfactional fighting between the kingdoms, etc. So clearly, we have and, and shall fear, and they shall fear the Lord and His goodness uh, in the latter days, so or the days to come. So clearly, we have a sort of messianic-ish prophetic statement about the return of the Davidic dynasty. It's all wrapped up together in the sense of okay, once you put away your harlotry, put away your idolatry, you come back to me, I'll restore your lands, I'll restore all the good stuff that I took away from you, and you can get the Davidic king figure back. And so. Obviously, as Christians, as Latter-day Saints, this should, you know, raise a red flag because we can read this messianically. Uh, but uh, at the very least, politically speaking, there's this yearning to return to the Davidic ideal. Um, presumably, we think by, the, by the, the reunification of the two kingdoms. It it almost feels like chapter 3 is like an epilogue of sorts that right. kind of restates what chapters 1 and 2 uh, did in a little more – elaborate language and detail uh, because, yeah, it already talked about this going and marrying a harlot and having these kids, and then it goes on this long poetry rant about – well, not rant, I shouldn't say, but um, – and, and but it culminates with this prospect of a return and a reunification, and, and then that prophecy there really kind of puts a bow on it, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, in this promise that like, yes, there will be a restoration at some point. Uh, and a reunification under a Davidic king, under a Messiah, if you will. Um, so yeah, uh, really good stuff. Does anybody want to add or comment on uh, on that at all before we move on? No, my summary was perfect. Do not add to it. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if anyone adds unto the words of this book, they will be condemned. No, just kidding. Um, if in that case, uh, we'll go ahead and move along. Uh, I actually looked at uh, chapters four through six uh, this last uh, little bit here, um, and uh, I don't have a lot to say about these, um, but it does kind of continue these themes in a lot of ways here. Uh, the Lord begins, um, he says uh, in the King James, it says, the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. And uh, that word that's translated controversy is, is – do you say it rib or reeb? Reeb. Reeb. Yep. It's, uh, it's a legal term in ancient Hebrew. And so what the Lord is basically doing here is he's bringing a – he's bringing charges against Israel in court, if you will. Um, and he's uh, – he, he kind of enumerates the charges over the next couple of verses um, – he talks about uh, there's no truth, no mercy, uh, nor knowledge of God in the land. So they're not worshiping him. They're not, they're not following truth. There's no mercy. Uh, there's, uh, there's swearing and lying and killing and stealing. I mean this is, this is like just a, a pretty enumerated list of like, hey, you're breaking all the commandments, okay? Committing adultery. Um, blood touches blood, toucheth blood, which is a, kind of a Levitical thing there. Um, and he goes on with some additional things. Uh, a lot of this is going to feel pretty arcane, I think, for a lot of people. The land uh, mourn and languish, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the heavens, fishes of the sea, and so on. Um, where I think it gets interesting, if I can find um, uh, where... Yeah. Uh, starting in verse, uh, th- well, 3 in uh, the JPS, this would be like... I think verse uh, – yeah, verse 3. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, well, that's wh- that's where it's talking about the land mourning and things like that. Uh, but it, it kind of just continues on with, with all of this stuff here. Um, but when you get to verse 10, it talks about um, – they shall they shall eat and they shall not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and it shall uh, and shall have shall not have or shall not increase. Um, and it it uses from from verses ten through twelve. It picks up this theme of of whoring that you get in in chapters one and two a lot. Uh, it talks about whoredom uh, t- uh, three times and 
uh, culminates with it saying uh, they have gone a whoring from under their god. Um, and then in verse 13, they sacrifice on the tops of the mountains, burn incense from the hills under oaks and poplar elms, uh, because the window thereof is good, and their daughters shall commit whoredom, and uh, spouses shall commit adultery. Um, and this is, you're getting, this is really kind of the heart of the charge here, is that they're committing adultery, or they're, they're committing, they're cheating on God, basically, by, by pra- practicing idolatry. And this is a recurring theme throughout the Hebrew Bible is that um, when you worship another god, you are basically you're you're basically committing adultery. You're you're having an affair. Because as as we just talked about and as is made very clear and kind of real in Hosea's own life with this analogy to Gomer uh, Gomer is that uh, Israel is supposed to be God's bride and that's how it's it's conceptualized there. Um I mean, when you think about why that's always the metaphor, why idolatry is equated with adultery, I think it probably comes down to um, to covenants, really. I mean, the marriage covenant is one that is super binding. It requires 100% loyalty. It's permanent. And so, and that's... The kind of covenant that Yahweh or that God wanted to forge with Israel. Now, I don't know. Stephen might know more than me, but I don't know of any other situation in the ancient world where a God like makes a covenant with a covenant people in the same like scope and scale that Israel does. And so perhaps the marriage covenant really is like the only way to kind of compare or to mm. liken or to make sense of this abstract concept of being in a covenant relationship with your patron deity. Well, what's interesting is my off-the-head understanding is most of the time gods make covenants with kings and like 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 localized, you know, polities, right? Um, yeah, I think this is – I think the Bible is unique in that he makes a covenant like with everybody, right, at Sinai and, and, and so forth. But typically like you're making a pact or a covenant, a treaty between the god and the king or like the nation state or whatever as opposed to the – yeah, so that, that's an interesting point. Um, anyway, it continues on with this language in in chapter four uh, about kind of adultery or whoredom, and, and then in verse fifteen, you you have Israel played the harlot, right? Um, and so this is where you kind of get this ex- more this, this explicit connection. Like it doesn't say say mention Gomer here, right? We're done with that specific analogy but you you have this echo back that Gomer really represents Israel in going and playing the harlot um and then you know it really just chapter 5 in a lot of ways repeats a lot of this this same pattern or theme at the beginning again you have some legal language um in 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 verse 1 for judgment is toward you um and it talks about in verse three, thou committest whoredom and Israel is defiled. Um, you know, it goes through and kind of uh, identifies some additional, it, you know, things that they're being judged or punished for and things like that. Um, it does at the end is you, you get some tie in. Um, you kind of get basically the Lord is predicting here or prophesying of the destruction of Ephraim uh, at the hand of the Assyrians here um, in this chapter as like this is where the punishment is meted out or or explained here. Right. And that's why it begins with this judgment. Um, verse 13 um, talks about um, uh, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrians uh, and sent to King Jerob, uh, and he could not heal you nor cure you of your wound. Uh, and so saying, look, Assyria can't help you, um, for I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. Um, and even and I, even I will tear and go away and will take away and none shall rescue him. And so he's saying, you're going to be destroyed. And he's even saying Judah will be destroyed too. Uh, I have a question. Some... If Hosea is somewhat contemporary with Isaiah, 
during Isaiah's time, he is dealing with the, um, uh, he's dealing with like the destruction of the Northern kingdom and Assyria coming and destroying them. And then you've got the destruction of Jerusalem with the siege of Sennacherib. And so Isaiah is prophesying kind of in that milieu where Assyria is the bad guy. And so in here in Hosea, where you've got in verse 13, almost sounds like Ephraim tried to align themselves with Assyria or make an ally of Assyria. Do either of you have any context of uh, what that historical background of that might be? I mean, I don't know. If Hosea is a little before Isaiah, was Assyria a viable ally at that point? Yeah, there's um, – okay. Now I'm trying to think of my history of Israel class I just took <laughs> earlier this year where we addressed this. Um, yeah, there, there was a brief moment where um, there was talk of an alliance between the northern kingdom and Assyria. And I think it was against um, – oh, shoot. Who were they? I think it was one of these, one of these other Transjordanian kingdoms as I, as I understand it, right? Uh, so like Moab or Edom or something like that. Um, but yes, there, there's there's a brief moment. Uh, it's like the it's like the Soviet Nazi non-aggression pact kind of deal in the 1930s, right? Uh, where yeah, where the Assyrians and the Northern Kingdom briefly aligned. But um, I could try to Google it real quick to refresh my memory. But yeah, th- th- this could be referring to something like that. Um, where like alliance uh, that they only made so that one side could break it. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's an interesting episode, and I'm like I said, I'm I'm kind of mad that I can't remember it now because literally in our class we talked about this. So, so but I, rest assured that yes, there's something to that there. I just don't know the exact details offhand. And these don't these don't talk specifically about the that specific historical situation. But I've got kind of a a introductory a, an Old Testament introductory book here by Bill Arnold and uh, Brian Bayer. Um, and they talk about how uh, most Bible scholars date the beginning of Hosea's ministry to uh, late in Jeroboam's reign. At this time, Assyria was rising to power and would soon establish itself as a world empire under Tiglath-Pileser III. Uh, and many in Israel saw this nation as a possible ally, uh, but Hosea warned against trusting Assyria uh, for anything. So uh, that's all they say. They don't talk about the specific historical scenario, but yeah, I think I, I I think I remember when when reading in Kings that okay. there is kind of a, a situation like it's that. It's the okay, yes, and I, I feel dumb for forgetting this is a, yes, it's the Syro Ephraimite War. So it's it's Judah and Assyria allied against the Northern Kingdom and Aram Aram Damascus. Mm, okay, yeah. I feel like it can get confusing for your average scripture reader because you've got kind of the same players across a lot of the scriptures, but sometimes they're the good guys, sometimes they're the bad yeah. guys. Historical. It's like Mexican food, a lot of the same ingredients being like <laughs> mixed around, and sometimes it's a burrito, sometimes it's a taco. I mean, Egypt is the quintessential bad guy in the Exodus, but then later on, under like Hezekiah, they're trying to make uh, treaties with Egypt and trying to make an ally of them. And same with Assyria and Babylon and Persia, like all these different world players are either allies or villains, depending on the time period. Well, you you do see their political role and relationships change, but I do also feel like you actually pretty consistently from the prophets and from the Lord get these warnings against like really leaning on and trusting oh, these, yeah. these right. superpowers, regardless of what the relationships might be at a particular time. Uh, there's kind of this consistent warning from the prophets like, hey, you should just put your trust in the Lord, actually, rather than... Uh, putting your faith in these these world yeah. powers, which right. tend to fail and and eventually collapse, and someone else comes along and they're mad at you for being allies with those guys, yep. so they punish you for it. Yep. And so it's uh, you know they they go politically their 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 relationship is changing, but the the prophets are generally pretty consistent and say no, they're just bad guys. They're always bad guys. Um, yeah, don't don't ever make an alliance with the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, even you know, if you hate the other guy. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, so then uh, in chapter six, though, uh, we get a little bit more of this redemption, and and like I said, the I I really feel like in a lot of these ways, these these three chapters have a similar arc to chapters one through three because you just get. You get like these warnings, and you know they're, they're bringing charges against Israel, and then it explains the punishment. But then chapter six, 
come, let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. And so there's this sense of of reconciliation between Israel um, and and uh, and the Lord here. After two days, uh, this is verse two. After two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up, and we will when we shall live in his sight. Um, and I don't know if anybody's ever pointed this out or if it, it's read this way by anybody. But, you know, typologically, I just felt like there's kind of maybe a, a likening to the resurrection here. Um, Dolly of dry bones, baby. That's yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of that, it just kind of like this sentiment of we know we've messed up. Let's return to the Lord and he will heal us. He'll bind us up like just this ceaseless optimism in the Lord's mercy reminded me a lot of Elder Gong's talk in this last general conference when he talked about, he related this story of a woman who really resented her father because he had mistreated her, felt like he wasn't a very good father or spouse. And yet, um, so she was reluctant to do his temple work when he had passed away, but she did it anyway. And then she had a dream where her father came to her all dressed in white and said, look, I'm clean. And thanking her for doing his temple work for them. And it's like that, that story illustrates how the mercy of God is so much more expansive than we th- often give credit for. That even someone who maybe did horrible things to another human being or you think is unforgivable, clearly the mm-hmm. Lord can forgive them. We don't know what process that person went through to get to that point, but we know that it is possible. And so that's kind of the sentiment I feel in these first few verses of chapter six, where it's talking about. Let's go to the Lord. It's, it's kind of that feeling when you mess up and you don't want to tell your parents, but eventually you mess up so bad. You're like, let's, I, I just got to go talk to my dad or I got to talk to my mom. It's like the prodigal son sort of sentiment that eventually gets so low that you know that mm-hmm. there's nothing else to do. You've got to go to your parent and you know that they're going to help, that they're going to heal you and bind you up. Um, and I, you know, I, I want to wrap up so that we have time to cover some of these other uh, chapters. But I, um, I want to just highlight verse six in chapter six. Uh, uh, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And uh, I don't know what uh, what the JPS translation has there. I desire for I desire goodness, not sacrifice, obedience to God rather than burnt offerings. Yeah. So. Uh, and in the Net Bible, it has, I delight in faithfulness, not simply sacrifice. I delight in acknowledging well, God. it's chesed. So, right. Uh, so, so it's, yeah, that, <laughs> I figured it might be. Yeah. Um, so chesed being this multivalent uh, word that's very, very difficult in Hebrew. Which uh, President Nelson wrote an article on recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but the, the point, the message here, I think, is that basically what the Lord is saying is he desires like a faithful, loyal relationship and connection with his people more so than like just having the, the rote performance of sacrifices, of burnt offerings, or if we were to apply that to us today, like the rote performance of of – like living the standards, uh, for instance, uh, uh, you know that we're in the for strength of youth pamphlet before they just changed it, or just or or just partaking of the sacrament, or or going to church and reading your scriptures. Like it's it's about more than just kind of this rote performance of of things. It's about developing a meaningful, deep relationship and loyalty to the Lord. And it's not saying he doesn't want sacrifices and burnt offerings. Those are part of what's been commanded. But those are supposed to be helping to formulate and create this bond and relationship. And that wasn't happening. And so the, the kind of the message is the Lord wants that. As, as he's trying to reunite with Israel, he's saying, let's have an actual relationship, not just you guys perform your ordinances kind of thing. Um, but uh, but that's everything I had on those sections, uh, and I believe um, unless anybody else wanted to add any comment on those chapters for whatever reason, we can move on to chapters ten through fourteen, which I believe uh, Hales might have some comment on. I believe I might. <laughs> Starting off in verse er, in chapter ten, verse one says, "Israel is an empty vine; he bringeth forth fruit unto himself." According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. This is all very ironic, right? They're not bringing forth 
unto the Lord, the most important fruit of all, which is the souls of human beings prepared for exaltation. They're instead offering food to idols. And instead, of, in return for the good, goodness of the land which he's given them, they are making goodly images. But the Lord does not plan to leave the situation as it is. Uh, in verses 12 through 13, he kind of puts, puts the whole situation in perspective in terms of the law of the harvest. He says, Sow to yourself in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Ye have plowed wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity, ye have eaten the fruit of lies, because thou didst trust in thy way in the multitude of thy mighty men. What we sow, we'll also reap. And if we sow righteousness, we can receive mercy and blessings in abundance. Because the Lord will rain righteousness upon us if we seek him with all of our hearts. If, on the other hand, we plant wickedness, we will harvest and eat the bitter fruit of that also, and it rewards us no good thing. So choose to sow righteousness, and you can and you can reap the mercy of the Lord. I suppose that applies to us as well as to them. Um, in the next chapter, there is this fairly iconic verse. Uh, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. The scripture is quoted in the second chapter of the book of Matthew, just after the departure of the wise men. Uh, that is in verse 13 through 15. Uh, it says, And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. So Matthew saw in the verse not just a, a recall of the Exodus, but a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. However, this also supports the overall Exodus typology in Christ's life, which is an interesting subject unto itself. Um, you see Christ spending day, 40 days in the wilderness, fasting and so forth. Israel spent, spent 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, Israel goes through the Red Sea with the fire, or with the pillar of fire and water, right? Um, Jesus is uh, baptized in the River Jordan, and the Holy Ghost descends in the form of a dove. And in some, in some respects, the uh, parallels go on and on. Um, so that all of those Exodus features, uh, in a sense, point forward to the redeeming mission of Christ. In uh, Hosea 12, uh, there is a set of recalls uh, or recollections of the Lord's relation, former relationship with Israel. Um, in verses 3 through 6, he took his brother by the heel and the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial. Therefore, turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and judgment, and wait on thy God continually. So we have here allusions to the episodes involving Jacob having Esau's heel and wrestling the angel. The point of these memorials is, of course, that, they should re that Israel should repent, that they should return to the Lord and themselves practice mercy and judgment, and they will then themselves warrant God's blessings of mercy. Um, in uh, chapter 13, they start off by saying, When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. Is it Baal or Baal? Uh, Baal. Baal. Yeah. The guttural Baal. Baal. Okay. <laughs> Baal. For a while, when we were reading scriptures, anytime we came to Baal, the, the kids would all start going, Baal! Baal! <laughs> If you say um, bail, I'll come down there to New Mexico and <laughs> slap you. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. So apparently the kids uh, making it sound like a sheep cry were more right than not. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, not bad. 
Okay, I'll have to remember that. All right, but this verse, I think, is actually very telling. When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, but when he offended in Baal, he died. When Ephraim was humble, the Lord was able to do glorious things with him. But when he regressed to idolatry and pride, he was ruined. And I think that's, isn't that true of all of us, right? When, when we're faithful and humble, the Lord can do amazing things. And we can become more than just ourselves. But when we get too stuck on ourselves and when we begin to exalt uh, the idols uh, uh, that the world provides, we end up crash-landing our lives. Uh, in verse 4 it says, Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. There is no other name given whereby salvation comes except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord of the Old Testament is also uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, but just premortally. Um, in verse 14, it, it plays up the theme that I think it was Stephen alluded to uh, earlier of resurrection. It says, I will ransom thee from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Death has been arguably the great terror of human life, and also the great leveler, but terribly feared because no good thing doesn't ultimately make its way to the dust. But this great force will itself face its maker because it too will go down to destruction at the hands of the Lord. And certainly that's a little bit of a more aggressive metaphor than the New Testament. Oh, death, yep. where is thy sting? I mean, oh, death, I will be thy plagues. Oh, grave, I will be thy destruction. You know, it's it's very epic. Well, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think... I think Paul's language there, oh, death, where is thy sting? And uh-huh. uh, I, I think that actually it comes from the Septuagint version right, of yeah. Hosea 13 here. But it is sort of a little bit of trash talking, right? <laughs> I will be your worst nightmare, death. In chapter 14, in verse 2, it says, Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. And I, I think that's a beautiful image because the, their lips are making offerings. And so praise is in this sense like a sacrifice. Uh, in verse 4, we have, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely for mine anger is turned away from him. Always remember that there's repentance. Turn to the Lord, and he will forgive and embrace freely if you turn to him with all your heart. And that is 10 through 14. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Uh, so that's that's the book of uh, that's the book of Hosea. We've just got a... You got five minutes for Joel, we've, Jasmine. We've got a few Go. minutes left here. Uh, Jasmine, did you have any insights on Joel you'd like to share? <laughs> Absolutely. We'll just give a nice, good introduction and overview to Joel. This is a very often overlooked book because it's very short compared to like Hosea. And it's about the day of the Lord. It's very much about end times, but it's not like the book of Revelation, which tends to be very apocalyptic. This is just talking about God's judgment on Israel, uh, on Israel and the entire world. When God is going to come judge the world, make everything right, really separate those wheat from those tares. And the main, well, the more prominent imagery in the book of Joel to demonstrate this is a real-life catastrophe, a swarm of locusts that devastates the land of Judah. In an agricultural society like Israel, you know, a swarm of locusts, or a pestilence of locusts could destroy your entire crop and it would be devastating. And so the Lord uses this metaphor of these the swarm of locusts coming to destroy the crop to represent how swiftly 
and how brutally and how overwhelmingly the Lord is going to come and, you know, destroy the wicked and judge between the righteous and the wicked and set everything right again. Um, And he also promises that God's going to save the people of Judah and Jerusalem who call on him. As far as the background of when and where this takes place, we don't know a whole lot. Uh, The book doesn't provide any biographical information about the prophet Joel. We know his father's Pethuel, but that's all we know. But it does address Judah a lot. So we can assume that this probably takes place sometime after Judah was an independent nation, maybe like late 8th century BC, or it could be anything all the way up until the Babylonian exile in the 5th century BC. So it's a pretty wide span of years where this could be taking place, but it is primarily concerned with the kingdom of Judah. So Hosea was the northern prophet. Joel seems to pretty definitely be a southern prophet. Um, but there are several references to the temple and Uh, The temple also seems to be functioning in context of the book of Joel. But again, we don't know if this is Solomon's temple or, you know, the temple that they build when they come back from exile. As far as the structure, it's we've got three chapters in Joel, but it's kind of split in half a little bit. And the halves mirror each other a little bit. Um, The first chapter of chapter one is devoted to this locust invasion, which... I mean, there's a little bit of ambiguity if this is like a sign of the time, like there's going to be a locust invasion, or rather this is like a metaphor for how God is going to come in the last days. Because then in chapter two, it switches to the Lord actually coming, the judgment of God's people, and, um, you know, destroying the wicked and uh, saving the righteous. The second half of chapter two deals with a little bit more hope. There's like a consolation for God's people There's more warnings about coming unto God. And then the final chapter is judgment on all the nations. So there's a lot of reflection on Judah needs to repent. The world needs to repent. And if not, there's going to be a swarm of locusts. He also draws an imagery of like warriors with chariots and how swiftly they'll come and devour and destroy. And so the main themes of Joel really is about approaching the day of the Lord, which may initially bring, you know, pain because you're dealing with some catastrophes, but it ultimately should lead to a renewal and vindication, the idea that God is going to put everything right. In the locust plague, um, Joel sees just how frail humanity is and just how chaotic the world really is, and it kind of emphasizes how desperately we need the Lord. So... That's kind of just the brief overview of what Joel does and what it covers. And um, the chapters itself, I'm not open to the chapter itself, but we may only have one minute here or 30 seconds before we get cut off. But basically the message of Joel is that we need to trust in the Lord and one day all will be made right again. Also, Moroni quotes Joel to Joseph Smith. Yeah, Joel too. Uh, So... Anyway, this is The Interpreter Show. Thank you for joining us this wonderful Sabbath evening, and have a good night.